Welcome to the Mental Health Boot Camp Podcast! This is the podcast where four psychotherapists, three of us Canadian, one of us Americans, serve you cutting-edge mental health knowledge. I am Dr. Ryan House, clinical psychologist from Pasadena, California. And I'm Dr. Brooke Lewis, a registered clinical counselor from the greater Vancouver area. And I'm Joanna Boyd, clinical counselor from Port Moody. I'm Chris Boyd, psychotherapist from Port Moody, British Columbia. Welcome, everybody. Here we are, two weeks in a row. How fun is that? That's amazing. What a track record. What a track record. That's right. We're back. We'll see. We'll see what happens after this. Hiatus till Christmas. You never know. But I'll tell you, we've done, this is our 89th episode of the podcast. Whoa. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of hours we put into this. We should be proud of ourselves. Pat ourselves on the back. How are how are you guys at self affirmations? Just speaking of that, do you do any of that stuff? Are you good at giving yourself compliments, or is that a challenge? What do you think about that? Oh man, well, I think I'm getting better at it. At first, I thought self compassion. I'm getting better at self compassion. Like if I mess something up, and then be like, "That's okay," because this, 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 this versus. A compliment just coming from something but no there are things i think out of pride like if i've done something and i'm very proud of it then i'm like a preschooler trying to show my teacher all like whatever i did on the weekend you know yeah yeah let me show you this item that i'm so proud of yeah Yeah. that's very cool i think uh for me it's more like i'd be maybe considered mantras just like if a thought pops into my mind instead of taking the bait and fixating on it i'll Use the wise words of Queen Elsa and just say, let it go. Get my mind back in the moment. Good. Um, so I do a lot of that stuff or um, maybe psych myself up a bit on Monday, say it's going to be a great day or um, you know, rock, rock it today, that kind of thing. But um, it's more of that type of stuff for me. Yeah, it's um, yeah, definitely always a work in progress, I think. It depends what's going on and how stressful life is and what's happening I think uh easier said than done sometimes to have some of those positive self-affirmations but what helps in moments where I might have a hard time focusing on that stuff would be people in my life being able to remind me of things you know like and so that helps so sometimes if um like remind yeah. you of your wins, remind you of things you've done well. Yeah, reminding me to maybe be kind to myself or oh. maybe a positive side of the situation or, um, you know, just, yeah, the, just the being kind, self-compassion there. So it's easy to be like, ah, oh, you know, get into the shoulds or I should be doing this or why can't I do this or whatever. And uh, so, yeah, nice to have people, if I'm not capable of reminding myself of that, to to chime in. So always trying for sure some moments are easier than others so yes how about you um you know i i find that i'm i can i can pat myself on the back pretty 
easily if it's like uh like an item on my to-do list that i've been meaning to do and then i finally get it done and i'm like all right good yeah nice nice work oh, that's, a good, that's a good one that's that a, a real good one, good one. yeah it's like okay yeah i did that good i crushed that and but there's sometimes that it's it's also kind of surprising there's there's sometimes I, I get done with a therapy session i'm like wow that was really that was really good that was really satisfying i felt uh, like a good connection or you know or i'll uh i know, it's I, I certainly my ratio of, of negative comments to myself is certainly higher than <laughs> than my my positive comments but uh but i'm working on it <laughs> what's that chris so tell us more yeah <laughs> i mean I think someone was it Barbara Fredrickson, a positive psychology person who said that we have like eight negative comments towards ourselves for every one positive. Um, yeah, that dark negativity bias, right? Yeah, definitely have a negativity Natural. bias. And, you know, so I'm like, I'm human like everybody else. I, I do tend to do the Oh, man, that was that was a dumb thing to say or gosh, how could I be so forgetful or whatever it might be. I'll uh, I'll repeat those things to myself, and so it's it's like those things seem to come naturally, and the the positives are kind of an effort, right? I have to work at those. <laughs> Good job, you know. Hey, I dropped my kids off at school on time. Way to go, Tiger! You know, <laughs> those little little victories. <laughs> kind of tough, but uh, I'd say it's just a habit you try to form and keep uh, keep at it, and that. Uh, the overwhelming, overwhelmingly negative self-talk can gradually be uh, dismantled a little bit. Yeah, I like what you said there too, but it doesn't have to be big monumental things. It could be smaller things throughout the day, but just the awareness that you're achieving these things is great. Yeah. So expecting every situation for positive elements and just being nice to yourself in that kind of way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's just so many things we take for granted, like... Like we get really mad at ourselves if we don't wake up on time, but we don't really congratulate ourselves if we do, you know? <laughs> so if we could just yeah. even be aware of the things, the, the ways that we are functioning in a, in a healthy manner and, and just acknowledge that for a second, uh, that would make a big difference. I think. Yeah. It's not that we need to throw ourselves a, you know, big parade every time we wash a dish, but, uh, just just try to keep the balance fair, you know? <laughs> You're a pretty good parade, though. Oh, yeah. Way to go. You folded laundry. Way to go. Yeah, so we got Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Well, uh, gosh. I guess tonight is a special occasion because it's it's been a little while since we've done... A book club, right? It's true. Yeah. Should we uh, pause for a song? I think the only good way to ring in a book club is with Joe's famous song. So let's let her roll right now. Yay! 
that was amazing. Well done. Thank you. Never gets old. Thank you. <laughs> I should play it tomorrow night at my book club. Be careful what you say or do on this podcast because Ryan has all the recordings and can do anything he wants with them. Make songs and little jingles and... <laughs> Yeah. No, I thought we went into the recording studio and really laid all those tracks down. Joe, wasn't that what happened? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe I cut and paste you talking a, a different one. But yes, so we have the we have the book club tonight, and we are talking about a a book that I found to be very intense and very interesting. Um, and even as a, as a therapist, there were some points that I found were very insightful and, uh, kind of helped inform the work that I do in some ways. So, I don't know. We will talk, we'll talk more about that, but the book, uh, good morning monster, right? Uh, author's name is Catherine, Catherine Gildner, Gildner. Yeah. Canadian, Canadian psychologist. Yep. Canadian psychologist. Out of Toronto, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say a quick, quick confession is that I actually did not get around to reading or listening to this book. So I'll be learning along with our listeners about uh, hearing about it and looking forward to eventually reading it myself. So just well, wanted to put that out there. Depending what we say about it. True. We will see. We'll find out. We will find out. That's right. Yeah. Well, feel free to ask you some questions. Thank you. So, because yeah. we want to make sure that listeners, including yourself, have a decent grasp or understanding of the book. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we, we actually, we planned it this way because we know that a lot of the listeners don't read the books that we do for the book club. So Joe wanted to be able to empathize and kind of understand what their experience was like. Right? Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. Totally planned. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> Uh, as we usually start off, who listened to the book and who read the book? I listened. <clears throat> I listened. I also listened. Look at us. Oh. Yeah, I was hoping to read it, uh, but my library didn't have it when I looked. I don't know if you were looking in Coquitlam. It was um, in Coquitlam. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Port Moody didn't have one. Uh, so I went for the audiobook. So yep. I'm curious how it would have come across reading versus listening is it is narrated by someone else not the author right right so a little that we know about this author um is that she is again a, a psychotherapist uh in toronto there seems like she's um maybe retired or or at the end of her career she write, writes this book um, she'd been working for 30, 40 years in the field of, in psychotherapy. She was trained actually as a psychoanalyst, uh, at, at, at one point she mentions that, uh, but she works in a very, um, it's, it's not like Freudian therapy, people lying on the couch, that sort of a thing. She just kind of takes relationships and people's histories and their past into account when she's talking with them. And, um, and what this book is, is it's a storytelling book. She's talking about several clients that she saw for numbers of years throughout her career. One of them is her very first client that she ever saw and saw for several years. And then a, a kind of a collection of, of, of other clients that she saw and kind of tells 
tells the story from beginning to end of their of their their therapy experience together. And uh, so I think it's five. Is it five different stories? It is five. Yeah. Laura, yeah. Peter, Danny, Elena, and Madeline. Yes. So I want to yeah. just make a do a quick aside here and talk about this fact that this this um, therapist is telling stories about her clients. Um, one of my favorite authors, Irvin Yalom, often writes books about his clients. There are other people who talk about their their clients in therapy, and yet we don't want to to freak people out because confidentiality in our field is the kind of the highest, most important thing that we have in in uh, in psychology, and uh, in, in therapy practices, the maintaining the privacy and the the confidentiality of the client. So what what therapists do is disguise and distort the details of the story um, so that the identity of the client is not being divulged or disclosed. And, uh, and, and they make it so the details are so different um, that no one would really recognize that person. And oftentimes the, the, the authors, the therapist authors will also get the consent of the, uh, of the client, even though it's being dis uh, distorted and disguised anyway. They'll get the consent from the client so that they, um, you know, agree that it's okay to tell the story if it's this this disguised and all of that stuff. But but the reason why there's there's so many people who still want to tell these stories is because some amazing things happen in therapy that wouldn't be known otherwise. Um, and and it's just uh, it can be some very compelling uh, storytelling and, and really interesting and stuff that people can really learn from and grow from. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and this psychologist says so she's written other books, I believe, right? Yeah. Like a very novelistic tone to it. Like, uh, I think she was a pretty good storyteller in a lot of ways. And she wrote her, her own memoir. Yeah. She referenced that. And I think there was two or three parts to that memoir. Yes. Yeah. So I guess yeah. the, the, the point I wanted to make about the whole confidentiality thing before I forget is that if you're a client going to therapy, I don't think you need to worry that your your therapist is going to write a book and include all your details in there. Absolutely. Uh, or a blog or a social media post. Or a blog or, or a social podcast, media podcast. Yes. Or, uh, yeah. or even um, mentioning it around the dinner table or sure. on transit or it doesn't leave the room unless there's permission to do so. Unless there's permission to do so or some legal you know, issues that cause us to have to make a report or something like that if someone's in, in harm. But generally speaking, we are professional secret keepers and we are not going to share details of our sessions with our clients or details about our clients to other people. We, at times, even on this podcast, have mentioned, oh yeah, there was a client who once did this, but uh, we're either talking in very general terms or it's a conglomerate of several clients or, you know, we're not sharing uh, specific information. And I just wanted to put that out there because that's something that uh, I know that clients get concerned about. You know, who's gonna? I'm gonna tell you the secret of mine. Who's gonna? Who's gonna hear about this? Right. For sure. No good point. Right. Yeah. Glad you brought it up. Hey, it's kind of the the ethical duty there. To make sure. So this this collection of stories, which may be a mixture of fact and fiction, but if if what kind of happened in the therapy. Uh, experiences really happened. There's some some pretty dynamic um, 
uh, stories that were, that were told here. And uh, mm -hmm. so, all right, mm -hmm. there's my there's my preamble to this whole podcast. What do you guys think of the book? <laughs> the big broad <laughs> question. So, um, just a a note as well. Like this book was written for any audience, right? Like it was supposed to be written for a general population, not just therapists. Right. And um, I think that general population can read it, but it in many parts, I think Chris, you had brought this up near the start of you listening to it as well. In many parts, I felt like it was more geared towards therapists than to general population. Yeah. Some of the language that was used um, wasn't always defined. Obviously we knew what that language was or what was being referenced. Um, there was an assumption of a certain level of knowledge in psychology or human behavior at certain points in the book. That's a good point. Th that is one of my biggest pet peeves uh, about psychology, by the way, <laughs> is the jargon that, that we therapists can use sometimes um, and toss around with, with clients or in articles in different places, um, kind of making the assumption that, well, everyone knows this, right? Um, when no, not everyone knows what transference is or what, you know, what's the difference between behaviorism and, and psychodynamics, you know, that people don't know these things because they didn't spend eight years in college learning about it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I think that is one of, one of the, one of the major problems that, uh, that gives psychology or psychotherapy kind of an image problem is that, uh, we use too much jargon. And we're not we plain language to people. Yeah. Other parts of the book, why another reason why I would say that is um, uh, some parts she was describing something and um, kind of give background information as to why she did what she did. But it almost came across this when I was listening, it was coming across as like a, a teachable moment for somebody who is a therapist. Mm -hmm. ah. Like here's mm -hmm. why I did do that. And I want to keep the, clients um so there's not just jargon for psychology but there's also these different theories and different theories have a different way to view it uh, what's important for processes of change and why things are going bad and stuff like that and so sometimes she would uh highlight what she was doing and say i did that because i wanted to make sure that i was doing this or this or this which would have aligned with the like a psychodynamic approach um so in those parts too, I don't know if you picked up on that, Ryan, there were just these moments where I felt like it was uh, supposed to be like a mentorship moment for the reader who mm -hmm. is assumed to be a therapist, practicing therapist, yeah. but a client to read that, they would understand it, but not in the, mm, not the nuanced way of a therapist. I... I would agree. It's, it's it's almost like a supervisor kind of talking to a trainee saying, uh, yeah, here's what you do when you're in this situation, right? Mm -hmm. or here's, here's what I did. This is a good way to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I know. I agree. I like the authenticity there. I think she, uh, she decided to share those interactions with specific examples. And uh, yeah, when she explained some of the things or questions she had, you know, I, I was... Um, yeah, I kind of caught some of that, like, and then she'd own it. She said, you know, uh, that was had to do with my own frustration with the situation or this is information I wanted to know. And I kind of pushed it and it was more for my purposes, not the clients. So, so I like the fact she owned that. And then mm -hmm. yeah, that teachable moment would kick in. I hope uh, 
for the non-therapist, they would, um, they would, that correction would help them understand what is appropriate, and what isn't in counseling right. or therapy. So I hope that they would get something from those moments, but it really did feel like uh, it was geared towards therapists. It also sounds, sorry, to, I'd like if, it also shows the humanness of therapists as well, mm-hmm. which is good. I'm sure like the fact that they're like, you know what, that didn't go. And this is, you know, like we're all learning. So I think that's good for clients or potential clients to hear as well. Yeah. Or non-therapists, I guess. No, I liked it. Yeah. Cause she, yeah, she talked about her very first client and then, and so she, um, you know, through the lens of a new therapist, but then she kind of had some corrections along the way or how she'd approach it differently. Right. So like Again, as a seasoned yeah. therapist, I would have done this, Yeah. but I was in my second year of practice and I, this is what I did and why I did it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I thought that was very beneficial as a listener. Another, also- another interesting thing that she did in, in her storytelling, um, Brooke mentioned that she had also written a memoir, I guess that came out maybe a year or two before this. And in her memoir, which I haven't read, but she she alludes to the fact that she experienced a lot of trauma of her own growing up. And um, and she was able to point out at times during these these stories about her own clients that when they would bring up trauma and they had her clients had a lot of trauma in their their backgrounds. But she would be was able to mention and recognize, oh, this was maybe pushing some buttons for my own, you know, abandonment or abuse or something in my own life. So that's that's what uh, what therapists call countertransference, where we feel something um, kind of triggered in us uh, regarding the work that we're doing with our clients. And so she could point out like, ah, yes, this was something that was uh, a, a hot issue for me because of my own my own history, my own past. Yeah. So that's very true. That's that's a, that's a great insight that that, again, people. People who aren't in the field might not be aware that that's that's something that we do you know we kind of have to take take stock of our own the own our own buttons that might get pushed in uh in therapy sessions and be aware of that so that we're not kind of overreacting or underreacting to what the client's saying we kind of have to know our own stuff yeah so So there's even moments where she depicted how she was getting frustrated with certain responses or lack of responses from clients. I think it might've been Danny. Yeah. How she was trying to sit with that. And, and there's that curiosity and then uh, kind of follow up with that a bit. So I think she owned that well. And again, the authenticity and the honesty, I, I appreciated that. So mentioning the, the the stories that she told and the clients she's working with, I mean, trauma really is a big thread here. We're not just talking about people who like, oh, I'm having some some challenges at work. I think I need to find another job. It's more like people who, after she was, after maybe a little bit of digging, oftentimes people are coming in for some immediate problem, but she digs a little bit into their life and finds out this, you know, severe history of neglect, tremendous abuse that they experienced. Uh, In the case of one of the clients, it was someone who uh, was an indigenous person who um, grew up with incredible violence and abuse uh at the hands of uh of the state right mm-hmm. or the government yeah that was the the client danny in the book and indigenous and uh part of the residential school system up here we've talked about that in previous podcasts but there's a lot of trauma and abuse that happened there mm-hmm. basically these kids were um, taken away from their families and um, yeah. sent off to schools 
kind of, well, I guess, westernized them. Um, so obviously led to a tremendous amount of issues and concerns that we're still dealing with as a nation right now, trying to help support this community. I'll say as the token American here, I, we, I had heard about the residential schools and I heard about, you know, the indigenous peoples up there and the, the challenges up there, but I didn't know to what degree until I heard the story about Danny. Oh, I did not know we, that, that had not trickled down here until I heard about that. And so uh, oh. if, if any folks in the U S uh, feel a little under-informed about the horrendous, uh, gosh, abuse, violence, trauma experienced by the indigenous peoples in, in Canada. This is a good story to read. Yes, as just one. There's um, another book, if listeners are interested. Um, it's fiction, but it, it is based off of things that truly did happen in residential schools. It's called Five Little Indians. Mm. Uh, and it's a, yeah, it's a great book. So it follows five children who went through the residential system and and how they came out and reconnected and whatnot. So it's a good read as well for therapists because it uh, links in trauma and then how does that impact the life moving forward in the next generation. And um, yeah, it was horrendous what happened. There's no other, yeah, it was horrendous. I mean, I know that we'll, we'll get into this more later, uh, uh, but uh... I like I did not realize that, that all the children were taken out of their homes, taken away from their parents, put into these schools, boarding schools, and basically taught not to be indigenous people anymore. Don't don't yeah. speak the language, don't use any uh gestures, anything like that. Be be like the the whites or like the the the, the Canadian people yeah. who live there, right? Yeah. Be like them. So then, and then we're going to send you back. And every time you do something that's that's more like the the native peoples, you're going to be punished. So they get this kind of drilled into their heads. And then when you kind of graduate from the school, you go back to your folks, and now you're ostracized by them because you're acting more uh, like the whites. It's just a total no-win situation for these folks. Yes. And that's if they were able to go home to their family. If, Often yeah. they weren't able to relocate them um, or they were too far away from their families. Um, oh. Often they were given fare, like bus fare. And so at 16 is when you left the school and you were given X number of dollars and put on a bus and that bus dropped you off in downtown Vancouver. And you didn't know where your family was, how to get to them, because chances are they don't live in downtown Vancouver. And here you have $30. And what are you going to do? So you need to find somewhere to live and find work. And um, yeah, it was, yeah. it just kept going. Anyways, yeah, whole the, different, uh, whole different ball game there. Then the parents coping with their kids being taken away, which happened in most circumstances. Yes. Not and just being um, taken away. The children were stolen from them yeah. like I, I i think taken yeah. away is actually a soft way to say it yeah yeah um, authorities would come and take like steal the children they would abduct the children from the home while the parents are confused and upset and they would never see their children again they had no communication with them the children weren't able to go back for um christmas vacation summer vacation they would not see or hear from their children their names, the children's names were taken away. They were given numbers. 
So they oh. didn't even have a name. Yeah. And then um, there's also, so a lot of the indigenous people were put onto reserves, often land that wasn't very desirable. But if you actually want to leave the reserve, you'd have to get permission from an Indian agent. So someone who works for the government who would give you permission to leave for a certain amount of time. So I think there were some circumstances where parents can go pick up their kids, but often the kids are in another province or so far away or didn't have permission to leave the reserve to get their kids. So, wow. yeah. So you think of, yeah, pretty awful situation all around. So, so this was one of the, again, one of the clients that she worked with and she actually did a lot of good, cause she didn't know that much about their experience either or this client's experience and the experience of all the, all the people who went through this. So she did some research and talked to experts and that sort of thing, which is kind of neat to hear about her kind of getting, getting more invested. Let me figure out what I can do to help out these people. Yeah. And she went all in on that, didn't she? Mm -hmm. like no. She, she really reached out to some of the, the, the specialists and, and uh, obviously, um, uh, folks in the indigenous community and just to really try to understand how to best support this client so yes i feel that she put a lot of time her own time of course into it just because she really wanted to support danny yeah. which is a great message for therapists and and also for clients um that therapists you should have a, a decent cultural understanding um of those differences right yeah yeah yeah. absolutely yeah i think danny the danny chapter for me was my um i learned the most chapter uh but that was probably because of the learning more of first nations culture which we've been trying to do and healing yeah. um which is yeah we've been trying to engage in that more so in that realm yeah i think that was uh the most enlightening chapter for me the other chapters were heavy trauma and cultural references in there. So one of the fellows came from an Asian background uh, and the abuse that he suffered was very intense as well. Um, extremely, yeah. Extremely. And obviously not totally lined up with the culture, but there were some some cultural components in there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The other three, were there cultural components to the other three? I think the no. last one, the, the 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 cultural piece was more like a class piece. She was uh, yeah, class. A very very high upper class, uh, privileged sort of life, and uh, but had some real yeah. trauma in that. Yeah, and the fourth, the diversity piece was sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. Um, as well. Yeah, so there was some di diversity throughout the clients in in that regard, which is good. Um, but yeah, a lot of severe, severe trauma. So something that stood out for me, Ryan, when I was reading it in the first client and as directed towards you, because this author is psychodynamic, I have psychodynamic undertones to my work, but I'm not pure psychodynamic. Sure. Um, and in part of the chapter, she says, uh, at one point, she's like, so uh, it was coming time where I needed to come up with a treatment plan for my client. We had been working together for a year and we really needed to figure out our treatment goals. And my mouth dropped a year without treatment goals yeah. or a plan. So like, is this normal psychodynamic 
Is it, does it take a year to do intake and figure out where to go? Because I feel like that's kind of part of the alignment for me. I, I get that train moving a little faster. I don't think you'd find any any contemporary psychodynamic therapist who would wait a year to to figure out what the goals are. Typically, that's in the first session. You know, what are you here to work yes. on? You know, what would you yeah. like to do? Magic wand. If everything was better, what would be better? And those might and those might change. You know, it might be like, oh, well, I just want to figure out how to talk to my spouse. Then it might be you might realize after digging around there, oh you can't talk to your spouse because you have all these abuse issues from your past. Okay. Now that's the goal. Right. So I, I don't, I don't think anyone would be waiting quite that long a year before figuring out what are we doing here? That doesn't, that seems like a long hello. <laughs> yes. It seemed like a very long hello. And so I thought I, I would bring that up to you. Did sure. you, do you recall that moment in the book? Did you I, have I, a similar reaction of like a year? What are you yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I do. Now that you mentioned it, I, I wouldn't recall it if you didn't mention it here, but yeah, I, I do remember that thinking, yeah, that's seems like a long time, but there is. So with, with the second dynamic work and I know it's a jargony term again, we want to define our terms. It's just, it's just this work that has to do with looking into the past. And it also has to do with the relationship between the therapist and the client. And you're also working with uh, working against or trying to figure out what the defenses are that the client's working with, right? Um, like, well, how are they how are they avoiding uh, going to the deeper places? And sometimes that takes some time, as as it did with all of these clients. I mean, there's one of my little interesting points to this, and I'm not sure if it's this is about how she works or how she decided to write about these clients. But there's a little bit of a formula to what she was she was doing, right? She she would talk about the client comes in. And they don't, they're kind of resistant or they don't really want to be there or they don't, you know, they're not really willing to do some of the harder stuff. One of the clients wasn't even willing to talk about the big issue for like three years or something. Right. So there's this defense thing that she bumps up against. And then they finally go into the deeper, there's kind of a breakthrough and they go into the deeper work and they kind of view their world a different way. And they make some changes in their life. And then after like magically, like after like four or five years, the therapist says, well, it looks like we're done here. And then, they, then they're done. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and that was that was a little startling for me right there, because oftentimes that's a decision that, that clients and therapists make together. At least me and my clients make that together. But yes. she just kind of announces, hey, looks like you're done. And, uh, and then they go their separate ways. And then she meets up with them for coffee 20 years later to rehash right. uh, their experience, right? Yes. Yes. That's interesting. Cause in another one of the chapters, maybe Alana's, she said, and now, and then we're entering our final phase of therapy where we're going to teach coping skills or whatever, so that she didn't have to, um, spoiler alert. I'm going to spoiler alert on Alana. She may have another, uh, diagnosis they ponder whether or not she has multiple personality disorder, or dis dissociative identity disorder. And um, so for to prevent her from splitting back into a different personality, she's going to need these new coping skills and that's going to be their final phase. However, nowhere else in the book do I remember her talking about phases or like explaining 
conceptually what those phases are or what they're in or yeah it was just out of nowhere now there was this terminology of we're entering the final phase yeah i kind of i was too neat and tidy yeah and... i was like i didn't know you were operating in phases yeah. so that part was uh, like it was just a bit disjointed when she used that language for me sure and i think these are things again that we as therapists are it can look at and go hmm that's weird that doesn't seem to be theoretically sound or something like that i don't know that the reader would necessarily pick up you know someone who's not in in uh, the psychology field might not pick up on that stuff but yeah for us we're able to say what what's going on here what, <laughs> what kind of a framework are you really using right so i'm curious like what do you two think um was the purpose of this book what do you think the author was trying what was trying to provide to the reader Um, I think a number of different things. I think um, she she frames it as if these are five heroes, right? Five individuals who've experienced crazy intensive trauma and uh, and through their own resiliency and, and through therapy was able to see some growth and change happen there, right? So again, I with her writing style telling novelistic and, st and storytelling I, I think that will resonate with people but i think it's definitely a story of resiliency i i i would agree i think there's i think there's a big part of that where she's she she talks about not just being um i mean we've said the word psychodynamic a lot, but but there's a relational component to this very much as well. And she, I think she's talking about how the relationship of therapy helps people to grow and how not just, not just facts or insights or techniques, but the relationship itself is a healing part of therapy. And she, she, she formed really important bonds with these people, uh, each of them. And some of that bond was what helped them to finally trust her more and open up more and, uh, and, and break through in, in significant ways. Um, so I think there's, there's, I think it's kind of a, a commercial for the, <laughs> the therapeutic relationship as being, being a very crucial component to, to healing or just relationships in general being a crucial component to healing. You know, we need other people in order to get through the biggest problems in our life. Yeah. I think it's also in terms of trauma, um, very educational how trauma can impact someone and yeah and the healing process what the healing process can look like and yeah to your point relational component so yeah. those stories though are, are very powerful and i think atlanta's story i, I mentioned this to like, you guys a couple of weeks ago a few weeks ago that there was some really really disturbing stuff that happened to atlanta yeah um well to all of them all of them but Elena's the scope and scale to... of it, yeah, just a tremendous amount of sexual abuse from the age of four to eight. Yeah. And, uh, extremely sadistic father, a psychopath. Was, who, uh, My vote is he was a psychopath. Absolutely. She didn't use that term in there, but yeah. Um, no there remorse. Definitely, there are definitely some markers in there. Um, but uh, yeah, and the, and the grandmother, just awful things that happened. But um, like I, I was... Uh, a little shocked by by some of that and, and i've been i've worked with clients who've experienced a lot of trauma and abuse so i think make, 
if this is a book for the general population, then my goodness, that chapter or all the chapters, but for me, that chapter specifically should have maybe should have had a yeah. Well, but Peter was um like locked away in a cage essentially for nearly 24 hours a day. Yeah. He was by himself in a little space with yeah. a bathroom bucket. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And yeah. then he was taken home where he slept alone and then was brought back and put back in this yeah. essentially a cage for years. Yeah. It yeah. sounds like there's a lot of different kinds of traumas, not really what's worse than what, but it sounds for sure. like for a different reader, yeah. like Chris, it was a bit shocking to hear the Alana stuff more so for whatever reason and that's Absolutely. yeah so it's just there could be yeah. all kinds of stuff for the reader yeah yeah it was a, it was a heavy book yeah. there yeah a trauma warning right from the get-go yeah. i guess is where i'm going with that like it's yeah. um yeah from, from uh, the first chapter for sure i'm saying these stories are and the thing is she, she actually purposely held back on a lot of the details and yes. these stories and she mentioned that but still all the details that she included uh, were pretty harsh your mind can fill in the blanks yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, definitely heavy. And I, I've got to say, maybe this is the cynic in me a little bit, but uh, to your question uh, about what was the purpose of this, I think with a lot of kind of therapy memoirs from from therapists, and there are a lot, there are a lot of them out there, really. Um, there's a little bit of, <laughs> a little bit of, hey, wasn't I clever here? Or, you know, a little bit of uh Hey, look at learn from me. Look what look at the cool thing I did with this client, right? Yeah. Which can be aided by the fact that part of it's fictional and we're, you know, and it's retrospective and uh, you know, the therapist is writing the story. But there's a little bit of wow, I was pretty good at this. So I don't know. I, I think I I have to imagine a little bit of ego must go into some of these uh these sort of let me tell you what I did in therapy stories as well, too. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I asked just because I was, I'm kind of confused on it myself, right? Like, was this, mm, yeah, meant to give readers a glimpse of what therapy is like? Is it to provide education on trauma? Is it um, to provide therapists with some guidance? Um, but I think Yellum does that really well, like in his, yeah. like the way that he tells therapeutic stories is geared towards therapists. An everyday person can read it, but uh, like, but it's based more on the like the therapist process. And this was not clearly the client process and not clearly the therapist process. Like it was relational in the writing. Yeah. And then I, I think that made me, yeah, it wasn't quite clear what I was supposed to get from the book. Interesting. I can see that. Sure. Who exactly is the audience? I mean, it, the, it's it's sold a lot. It's been read by a lot of people. It won some awards. I mean, it's been widely acclaimed. But uh, but right, it's, it's a little little unclear as to what yeah, you know, what is that focus? Mm -hmm. yeah. Or for me, a little bit. Yeah. The um, a couple takeaways for myself. First, I forgot to mention this earlier. Um, whoever narrates the book, I think she's a voice actor. But uh, I found it tough to listen to at times because based mm -hmm. on the cultural background, she was actually shifting her cadence. So with Peter, who in the book is um, Chinese Canadian, 
uh, her pausing almost seemed as if she was speaking with an accent, but they actually mentioned in the book that he actually never learned Mandarin. He's just learned English. So I, I don't know. And also uh, with some of the other uh, clients too, she was shifting her, her tone and, and, uh, but anyways, I, I felt that was a little tough to listen to at times. Mm -hmm. um, another observation too, is the, uh, did you guys notice that by the way, or was that just me? I think I noticed it because you mentioned it, Oh, okay. but she did. And the indiscrepancy there, like the fact he never actually learned Mandarin, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, she did shift her voice for all the characters, right? She was trying to differentiate. Yeah. And then each story, like each client would have had to have a different voice. Mm -hmm. So trying to figure out what that was, but it was a stereotyped voice mm -hmm. for all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's yeah. I I don't know what the what goes into the world of the voice actors that I've read through hundreds of books uh, <laughs> on Audible, but uh, yeah, there's got to be a, some some interesting decisions made there. It's like, what am I going to make this person sound like? Right? Yeah. Obviously, that's her profession and whatnot. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, anyways, another observation too, just as the reader. Um, my goodness, these kids experience so much so many difficulties and challenges but i feel they're let down quite a bit by the adults oh yeah lives i think we we're talking a bit about that brooke is the there's so many it seemed like there's so many signs there that these kids are suffering um and doctors and police officers and teachers and yeah. social workers and neighbors and just really let these kids down so and i'm starting i was like am i missing something in my own yes. life is this happening around me and I, like it definitely got me a little bit uh, paranoid. <laughs> yeah. It, yes. Some in retrospect, of course, I understand there's a fictional component to the book, but just that awareness of that. Hey, sometimes there's kids suffering and, and uh, may want to follow up or ask questions or when in doubt, check it out, check it out. There's <laughs> a an observation on the storytelling there or the, the clients who are portrayed. Right. That's it. Uh, do you guys have a piece of paper handy? No. No. Okay. Well, you have you do have fingers handy though, right? No. No. Okay. We're going well, to make our look. our big assessment on a scale of one to ten. Can't what? use halves, I guess. Can't use halves because you got a full finger. Um. So, your grade for this book on the count of three. One, two, three, go. Oh, uh, five for Brooke, yeah. eight for Chris, seven was, for me. I was going to go like seven and a half, by the way. but I was going to go six. I took away my thumb. Yeah. Well, your thumb. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Five for Brooke. Tell me about that, Brooke. Yeah, like, I do think there's a lot of really good things in there. Yeah. I didn't want it to be on the negative side. I didn't want it to be like a four or three or anything like that. Yeah. Um, But would I recommend this book? Probably not. But I probably wouldn't because I'm not clear on what somebody, on what the purpose is. I can't clearly say... 
like suggest this book because I wouldn't be able to like, there's a sales things phrase called find a need and fill it. And, and so if there's a need in the client, I could not say whether or not this book will fill it because I'm not really, yeah, it's, it's very unclear. I think it was just too unclear for me. Yep. Um, there's storytelling, there's trauma. I yeah. don't know how much people will walk away with um, though. Maybe a new therapist. I would recommend it to a new therapist. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Will I read it again? Probably not. Yeah. yeah. So enough. not great. Not bad. Okay. So neutral. Neutral. Well, I had the middle score at seven. So I'll say that uh, I, I I appreciated uh I appreciated her getting kind of deep into the, the traumatic elements of, uh, of some of these people's lives and also the, the healing from those traumas. Uh, I don't think there's enough out there about that. I, I, the, the book, uh, what my bones know by Stephanie Fu, um, is a book about complex traumas that, uh, someone experienced in deep level and, uh, and she talks about her healing process and that sort of thing. And uh, so I actually have recommended this this book to uh, several clients of mine who experienced trauma in their lives. Um, you know, people who I, I felt like could kind of handle this and and were, um, you know, really interested in this. And you know, how do I how do I get through this? And what does it look like? And and it's been pretty positive uh, from them. And one of the clients who had. An experience that's very similar to one of the uh the stories in the book so it was like yeah read this story this was a this was one that really speaks to you because i think that's important I, I actually think it's important for people who've experienced trauma to hear other people's trauma stories to, so they don't feel like i'm alone in this i'm the only one who ever experienced this and it, it kind of validates and also helps them feel like ah okay there is there's some hope there's a way out so that's that's what I think about this, and I mentioned my, you know, the, the kind of formulaic pieces and the jargon and and some of that uh, kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But I think I'm glad it's I'm glad the book exists. Let me put it that way. Glad it exists. I probably won't reread it myself either, but uh, it was an interesting read. Chris, what about you? Um, yeah, no, I I enjoyed the book overall. For a number of different reasons i have actually recommended it to two, two clients as well yeah uh, or to you ryan it was like listen to this this one particular one i, I think would be very yeah. beneficial for them yeah um with some disclaimers in terms of the nature of it but yeah i felt they would be able to handle that and be intrigued yeah. by that um i've also recommended what my bones know too i like the storytelling element of it yeah I feel that, mm -hmm. um you know, if like with well, a body keeps score is a big trauma book, and even a boy who raised a dog, some storytelling in there too. What happened to um, you? What happened to you? But um, I, I just like the progression of the stories, and I actually did learn a lot from her, her approaches and how she conceptualized it, and how she pinpointed what might have been going on, and and I, I like the fact she owned it when she, she talked about some of her mistakes, or and then she, so I thought that was, yeah, helpful. To hear that um but the stories were really impactful i think we need more good trauma books out there you know trauma is a big buzzword right now yeah and i feel that's one of the better trauma books i think i've read mm. um 
I think I liked it more than I can. Oh, I shouldn't. I really like Bruce Perry's books a lot. So I think Bruce Perry for me, his books are still up there as number one. Um, but I, I think it's definitely up there with Bessel's book um, for the storytelling elements of it. It's more accessible than Bessel's. More accessible, and I just like the flow of it. So, anyways, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I don't think I need to read it again, but I definitely took a lot from it. Mm. Mm. Okay. So there we go. A little mixed mixed reviews here. Five, seven, and eight. Uh, Joe, given what we've said about the book, how inclined are you to take a look? Um. Yeah, as a therapist, I, I'd be inclined. I'm curious to at least, yeah, check out some of the stories. I think it's yeah. having worked a lot with trauma in the past and, and still in some ways, I'd be curious to how she worked with some of these people because, yeah. I've worked, yeah. So I'm intrigued, but cool. Yeah. Well, there we go. Good morning, monster. What's our next book gonna be, everybody? Joanna Brooke. Bruce. Okay, Bruce. Sebo. We've chosen to do a book called um, "Braiding Sweet Grass." So it's a. Uh, it's a book about plant medicine and indigenous wisdom um, in kind of Brooke suggested. We have a Truth and Reconciliation Day coming up uh, at the end of September here in Canada. Uh, and so just uh, a book in honor of just learning more about the indigenous cultures. And, what is uh, what is Truth and, and Reconciliation Day? What's that about? Um. Well, it's a step towards the reconciliation. So being truthful about Canadian history, truthful about the colonization and residential schools and what's happened with our First Nations people, our Métis people. Um, and yeah, so it's uh, it's an interesting. Last year was the first year and I didn't know what to expect, like the tone of it. Uh, it was... I'm glad it the day has been made. It was unfortunately really made after they started finding the unmarked graves of the children and that um, kind of fast forwarded things. But yeah, it was uh, it was great. We we actually went to um, like a first First Nations cultural center. We were in Whistler for the work retreat there, and we were able to go to the center and they had a lot of activities. So learning about carvings and histories and the museum was open and you could participate in nature walks and um, learn more about the harmonious, the way humans need to be harmonious with nature and the land and ways of being and connecting. And uh, it was great. So I was, uh, I didn't know if it was not saying this wouldn't have been great, but I, I wasn't sure if it was going to be more like Remembrance Day. So Veterans Day um, where it'd be more somber, but it was actually more like, it was more educational and yeah so truth and reconciliation day is about um being truthful and coming forward with honoring our history um and taking steps to reconcile so there we go. that sounds great glad they do it is it is it like a like a holiday like a day off sort of a day or federal um which means yeah all the federal employees that's a it's a day off but it's not a stat so um, 
I think schools have it off, right? But yep. private sector, like private companies don't have to pay extra for their employees on that day or have a day off. It's up to them. They can choose if they want to take that day or not. Similar to the opposite of Truth and Reconciliation Day, sort of, but the Queen's funeral, in observance of the Queen's funeral, the federal employees have that all off, schools are closed, but it's up to the private companies if they would like to close for the day. No so that you can observe the funeral. Yeah. No kidding. I was that yeah. was wild. So now there's definitely like a little bit of like, hey, companies, if you're gonna close for the observance of the Queen's funeral, you better be closing for Truth and Reconciliation Day. Like there's calling out. Yeah. Which is good. Which is good to say, hey, this is very truth and reconciliation day is very important. Wow. Wow. Uh when is the Queen's funeral? I don't even know when it is. Monday. Monday. Don't think I don't think they're making it a holiday here. Must have something to do with a little war that we had many years ago. <laughs> I don't know. But I know there will be a lot of people watching. Oh my gosh. Still big news down here for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So braiding sweet grass. Sweet grass. Sweet grass, braiding sweet grass. Find it in your bookstore, find it on Audible, find it wherever, and uh, read it up, and we will talk about it in a while. Yeah. And if listeners are looking for another book about experiences of residential schools, I highly recommend Five Little Indians. Um, and that is, uh, again, it's a novel, but it is based off of. Uh, experiences people would have gone through in the residential school system. It's very good. And if people want to know more about trauma, what my bones know is excellent. Quite a book as well. Whew, Stephanie Fu. Yes. Well, all right then. I guess that concludes our book club. So that's it. We will say good night for now. Please like and subscribe on Apple, Google, Podbean, Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. Send your questions to, to us somehow. Not sure. Carrier Pigeon, maybe. Do we have an email address? I don't even know. Look for us on Instagram or, uh, or definitely on Facebook. That's a better place, I guess. Tell a friend or two. That's it. Good night. See you later, everybody. Good night, everybody. Bye now. Thanks for listening. Thank you.